Welcome to Global Questions by YDS, the podcast breaking down global politics for young people who want to know more. I'm your host, Jen Marcocci. For today's Trailblazer episode, I'm joined with Jacob Thomas. They are a changemaker, advocate, and volunteer. They have a broader range of experience, notably their role at Monash Warwick Alliance as the Education Project Coordinator and their former role as Coordinator at the Commonwealth Youth Gender Equality Network. They have also worked across many industries, such as the human rights space, trans advocacy and development and aid, just to name a few. The reason why I do what I do is because I'm trying to instill in people that they deserve to have that space. And being a white person, people are going to listen. That's the thing with that. You use your privilege for good. Today we are dissecting their experience working abroad, how they seized opportunities and got through adversity, along with their motivations and advice. Content warning for this one. Discussion of mental illness and homophobic slur. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. So just to get us started, can you tell me a bit about your work that you've done before becoming a coordinator at Synergen and what you identify as? Yeah, sure thing. So um, I will be honest, it's not a clean journey. I have had multiple careers. I've had a lot of different jobs. And at the time of this podcast, I'm 30. But yeah, for the past 10 years, I've worked in sectors such as mental health, suicide prevention. I've done a lot of leadership work. I've then moved into international human rights kind of in academia I do some research as well obviously do some uh, I do quite a bit of volunteer work now more so in mentoring but yeah I've done a lot of different things but then outside of that as well I'm also an artist I'm a creative predominantly in drag now but I have done musical theatre stage theatre I also design I'm I'm now making wigs so if anyone needs anything hit me up let me know I'll see if I can do something for you Um, (laughs) so I've done a lot I've done a lot of different really exciting really really fun things I will say is so I'm no longer the coordinator of SciGen, so the Commonwealth Youth Gender and Equality Network, but it's now being run by an absolutely phenomenal young woman. Uh, her name's Ola. So yeah, go and check her work out as well on her work around women and girls' rights, the rights of the girl child. Absolutely brilliant. So Ola Ola Abagun brilliant human and then on top of that how I identify so I am a non-binary trans person I pronouns such as they and them they're not preferred they are just my pronouns and then outside of that I'd say that I'm just a white queer who lives in Melbourne (laughs) so you know there's (laughs) a bit of intersectionality not a great deal so there's also that What are you currently doing? Yeah, so currently what I'm doing for work, I'm doing a few different bits and bobs. So predominantly I'm in the higher education sector, so I'm in international partnerships uh, working on the Monash Warwick Alliance, which is between, it's a massive alliance between Monash University and the University of Warwick over in the UK. So I get to look at all the phenomenal education initiatives that we create within that with phenomenal academics, brilliant students. But then on top of that, I also currently research within the Monash Centre for Health Research and Implementation. I'm doing a bit of volunteer work with the Queen's Commonwealth Trust, which Harry and Megan are the president and vice president of, respectively, and then doing some volunteer work every now and again within the UN Girls Education Initiative when I have spare time. That's amazing. How do you have time to breathe? Honestly, so impressed (laughs) by all of that. (laughs) Uh, 
Oh, thank you very much. I um, I know I find it, you've got to remember is like, I'm 30 now. I've done this for quite a few years. I've kind of worked out how to prioritize my time incredibly well. Plus I've been researching and studying my master's on top of that too, putting on shows and all these different things. So I just want to make sure no one really glamorizes being busy as a personality because it's not. And I'm just really lucky that I found work that I'm incredibly passionate about. I just want to ask a few questions that some of our listeners may be too afraid to ask because they think they should already know the answer. So what does non-binary mean? Uh, yeah, look, it's a great question. And I'm, uh, I will say I'm really glad that people are being courageous and asking. Work-wise, if anyone is willing to work in diplomacy, you're not going to get far if you are very unafraid to ask questions. So please do ask questions. Just make sure you're asking them respectfully. In my case, look, being non-binary is, it's an identity. It's a gender identity. It's one of many gender identities that exist. For me, it is noting that I don't sort of define myself within your really typical Western white confines of strict gender binaries. And by that, I mean, I don't identify personally as male. I don't identify as female. I kind of sit... I think sometimes we try and talk about non-binary sitting in between, but that kind of creates Mm. this absolute of maleness and femaleness. For me, one of the best things that I ever heard is gender is a galaxy and you have an opportunity in your life to explore it. No one is 100% male and no one is 100% female. Everyone's just kind of doing their own thing. And I think being able to embrace that beautiful experience that people have um, of their own gender identity and then their own gender expression is a really, really important and powerful thing. It creates autonomy. It gives agency. It's what we talk about a lot within diplomatic work and development work. And so, yeah, I get to live by that. I get to just live with who I am and how I wish to express myself every single day. Are there many non-binary genders that exist? Um, Yeah, there's heaps, heaps and heaps and heaps. I think one of the things that we have to get um, very uncomfortable talking about, and I think we're finally getting a bit more open about this, is the real impact on colonisation. Non-binary is a Western term. I'm saying this as a white person. When and as we continue to colonise, there are so many people around the world whose gender identities were completely, I'll say softly, they were marginalised. A bit more pointedly, they were wiped out. They were completely Mm. ostracised and destroyed in a lot of cases. And so what we're seeing at the moment is people finally being able to reclaim their own identity. And I think we've also got to be careful with identity as well. You know, it's just, I'm saying identity because I think that's what most people are quite comfortable with and what we sort of default to. But more importantly is that, you know, when you look at numerous communities around the world, predominantly a lot of First Nations peoples, a lot of Indigenous communities, they have multiple genders that we might sort of identify as non-binary genders. But more importantly is that they're cultural identities, they're cultural practices. They are deeply relevant and relative to their own community and to the practices that they have. I think we've also got to be really careful about just calling it a gender identity because it's not mm. just that. You know, We would call it a just a gender identity. But, you know, it's so much more than that. So I strongly recommend people to get reading, get a really un- good understanding around Hishraz, who are throughout Southeast Asia, get a reading on the K Islands within Indonesia, look at two-spirit people, brother boys and sister girls. There's so many, and always read it from the global Southern perspective, if you can. I say this as someone who writes about this as well. Don't read my stuff, <laughs> but go and read some really brilliant global Southern academics and global Southern trans and non-binary and gender expansive people's experiences because that's how we're going to be 
better allies to each other. Great. How do you think non-binary people are seen in the gay community? Um, oh, look, it's, um, <laughs> it's an interesting one. I'm trying to not be too, um, too personally biased on this yeah. one. Look, I think there's, I can't speak for everyone. I think it's really important that we recognise that, yeah, I can't be the spokesperson <laughs> for non-binary yeah. people. What we, what, we, what we do know, and this is informed from a lot of data, is that there's in, in spaces such as Australia, the United States, the United Kingdom and Canada, a lot of us who are non-binary don't necessarily feel safe or warm to or unconditionally welcomed into a lot of not just gay spaces but a lot of queer spaces as well there's always going to be division there's always going to be disagreement it's constant debates around whether we even belong in feminism let alone just being welcomed into queer spaces uh, it's, it kind of sucks because i'm just talking on deficits at this point which i don't particularly like mm. doing but, you know again it's informed from research is that a lot of us feel as though they're just we're just not welcomed into those spaces they're just not for us whether it's because they're really heavily gendered. So a lot of you know, gay-centric spaces will either be very gay male-oriented or lesbian female-oriented. So then you've obviously got bi invisibility coming into that and pan invisibility coming into that as well. It can mean that, you know, we're not able to safely move into spaces that, I don't know, just have really gendered toilets as an example, like it's always, it's never an issue until it becomes an issue. People's understanding of non-binary and our expression, our experience, our fuller identity isn't just a default to androgyny or a default to the feminine or a default to the masculine. It's just, it's us trying to sort of unpick and understand. I mean, I would say, I don't think everyone thinks this academically about this as I do, but I think for me, it's just like, yeah, I, I like wearing pants because uh, I just like wearing pants. Uh, I like wearing a flannel shirt because, you know, I grew up in the country. I just look great in it. So there's that. But, you know, like sometimes I'll chuck nails on, sometimes I'll chuck makeup on, but probably more so if I'm doing drag. But, you know, I don't owe anyone a particular expression. I think more importantly, than anything is that whether it's just for our little baby queers who are coming through or people who are you know coming out later in life is that you deserve to be loved you deserve safety you deserve to be acknowledged unconditionally and loved for who you are as a whole person and if people are telling you that you don't deserve that or if they're treating you in a way that makes it clear that they're not going to give you that then move them along because we attract kind of young professionals there's still that space for and room for understanding more so it's good to kind of bring this to light more and hear it from someone who has lived experiences as well yeah thank you for those um yeah (laughs) Is there anything else you think is important to clarify for our listeners? Um, I mean, you know, how long is a piece of string? But if we're being specific about yeah. um, non-binary identities and expression, all of us have a great opportunity who I still count myself as young <laughs> just for the next, like, like the next five years. I'm just like, mm, I mean, you. <laughs> watch out, everyone. Um <laughs> You know, it's just we're we're in a really lucky position to if you're if you're residing in a high income country or a quite outdated but you know, a highly developed country and you have access to the internet and you have time and you are interested, go have a look um, and go look at really trusted resources. Go look at great organisations like Transgender Victoria, Minus Eighteen, Y Gender. Have a look at the Zoe Bell Gender Centre and get a really clear understanding about from from the horse's mouth, if you will. These are our experiences. And we're going to be able to point you in the right direction. And yeah, really important one, how pronouns work. If you are really terrified to work with people's pronouns, 
It's okay. We'll work you through that. Yeah, everyone just wants to hear the word sorry. Well, now onto questions about your roles and experiences specifically. What did you study? Uh, so I studied a Bachelor of Arts. I did a double major in Sociology and Gender Studies, a minor in Metaphysics Philosophy. I'm currently doing my Master's in International Development, and I just got invited to apply for a PhD in Medicine and Public Health. Well, congratulations. Thank you very much. It's very, very exciting. But, you know, it's wonderful to receive the invitation. Yeah, 100%. Did you do much extracurricular in university? I think I did far too much extracurricular, um, which is probably why, you know, didn't quite, um, <laughs> you know, get the, get the best grades that I could have. Every now and again, you look at a problem and you're just like, oh, what could have caused it? It's just like, babes, you know what the problem was. It was you. Yeah, you exactly. <laughs> you. Um, and that's the beauty of hindsight, kids. Just going to throw it out there. Yeah, I had to work full-time, so I studied part-time. In addition to that, worked in one of our cafes on campus. I did a lot of student theatre. I know, shocking uh, for anyone listening. I know, gasp. They did theatre. <laughs> Cute. Wouldn't have picked it. Sometimes the stereotype exists for a reason. But yeah, I did like a lot of ambassadorial work. I did you know, some student leadership stuff. Yeah, I, my plate was very, very full. But I didn't do any of the stuff that really, I think, directly led to the career choices that I ended up making or having. Yeah, so do you think like those extracurricular activities you took part in in uni helped you get to where you wanted to go though after um, your degree? I think like, you know, there's there's certainly demonstrable skills um, that I got from them. Wouldn't necessarily say I, put, I would put all of my eggs in that basket. I think one of the best things I ever learnt working in a black box theatre, which requires you to be incredibly adaptive and also it makes you incredibly resilient, I would say. You know, if you can work with nothing, you're going to create some really, really nifty stuff. I still use all of those principles to my work today. One of my mentors he's absolutely phenomenal his name's professor abid khan he's absolutely brilliant because we both sort of share the same mindset is that let's create the idea and we'll worry about the money later because the money will come somehow so it's without a doubt really really helped me navigate horridly complex spaces such as development and human rights yeah i think that's such an interesting point because people who would probably be able to get the money really easy but wouldn't even have the creativity behind them to actually execute something Mm. or just like have the brains and the skills but like not the creativity to actually produce something. So I think that's, yeah, very unique in itself. Yeah, absolutely. I don't think we, um, I don't think we credit the arts anywhere near enough. If anyone listening is trying to build a team, if you do not have someone who is an actual creative, your work's going to suffer a little bit. I will just sort of throw that out there. Get artists involved any which way that you can. They'll make your project go from like a 10 to like a 26 out of 10. I'm not good with math, but I think that's right. <laughs> yeah, I think you're bang on there. But I also did a Bachelor of Arts, so who knows? With I want to move towards Love the... this for us. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Literally. So I want to talk a bit about the trans advocacy you've done. So what motivated you to get involved in that space and what did it look like? Oh, where do we, where do we sort of begin with this one? I think I sort of kind of fell into it if you will I think that I I keep getting told off because I keep saying I just fell into it from my friends and they're just like you didn't you worked really hard so own it (laughs) so humility will probably be the end of me but look I think broadly speaking I just care about people you know it's just like I we can't keep living in a world full of injustice trans people are some of our most vulnerable communities all around the world but a lot of people still don't have legal rights so it's like our suicide rate is ridiculously high our self-harm rate's incredibly high and on the much more privileged side of it and we need to get comfortable talking about privilege so if you want to be in diplomacy and you can't say the p word then 
pick a different career because you will not survive it. I want to get to a point one day when I get to talk about how wonderfully trans kids are doing. I want to get to the, you know, I see a transgender or a non-binary professor in a university who's in a senior executive position. I want, I want queer presidents. I want queer prime ministers. I want that representation to go in there. And not just like white people either. Like I want people, I want beautiful, strong immaculately driven humans who have come from poverty, who are people of colour, who are First Nations, who you know, live with disabilities, who have overcome so, so much incredible hardship, who then bring that empathy into those leadership roles. The reason why I do what I do is because I'm trying to instill in people that they deserve to have that space. And you know, being a white person, I, people are going to listen. That's the thing with that. You use your privilege for good. If you put me into a data pool, I'm going to be an outlier. And that's uncomfortable because I should be the standard. If I'm going to Google trans women of colour, I want to see the celebration of them. I don't want to see what number we're up to when it comes to murders. That's the problem. If you are going to work in advocacy, if you're going to work in diplomacy, you need to do it for the right reasons. And for me, the reason I do what I do, yeah, I'm going to get accolades for it. Yes, I've won a lot of prizes for it. Yes, I've got a lot of, you know, really, really brilliant opportunities that have been afforded to me because of it. But it's not about me. It's about my community absolutely nailing it. I think when we talk about trans people doing well, or doing good things, you know, it's when we win prizes or it's when we win awards. But you're probably not going to see all the hard work that we're doing. You know, you're not seeing all the abuse that we're copying, you know, from governments or from peers, from other people within our communities. You're not seeing those moments where we're looking after each other and holding each other really, really tight because we've had another really, really bad day or because someone got denied their surgery or because someone got fired from their job. Those are the moments that count more than anything else. And I love us to the end of the world and back because we are great and we are deserving of being here. Wow, Jacob, thank you so much. That's undoubtedly a really strong message and thank you so much for sharing that. I was also wondering what actually is the act of advocating and what makes you an activist? Yeah, um, look, if uh, where to begin? <laughs> I think it, you can do it in a number of different ways, you know. It's a, put this way, it's like I do a lot of research now. I'm getting published and that's great because it gets into the academy. The other part of it as well, though, is you show people that you care. I remember this is a couple of years ago now, but I was in a really, really rough patch in my life. I had to go back into therapy. Yeah, I caught up with a friend. I love telling this story because I, I think I tell everyone. Anyway, we caught up. We hadn't seen each other for, for years. Like, And she reached out on Instagram and she was like, hey, I see you're not doing super great. Let's have a chat. She chat about life. And we were leaving and I just turned to her as I was about to walk back to the train station. I was like, hey, I just want to say thanks for reaching out today. I really appreciate it. She goes... Well, here's the thing. I saw this person that I love who was having a really, really hard time being you, Jacob. And, and I went, oh, that really sucks because here's this person that I really care about and I hope that they feel better soon. And I stopped myself. You can't just hope that someone feels better at the end of the day. Caring is an action. 
and you have to show you care. It's not about the big action that you take. It is about also sitting in people's pain and being present with them, not trying to fix everything. I think a lot of the time when we talk about advocacy and we talk about activism, it's quite outcome-driven. Again, it's really important stuff. It's fundamentally important to put protection laws in, to decriminalise, to you know, give people legal humanity back. If you can't do the really, really big stuff, if you can't start up an NGO or you can't set up a not-for-profit or you can't you know, do a research paper on this, that's okay. Be there for people. That's so interesting because I feel that a lot of people would think activism is mostly through protesting and posting on social media and doing all those seen actions. So it's really nice to hear that there are things that people can do on a grassroots type level just in their own communities. So talking about caring for others and doing what you can, you do have a bit of experience in aid and development and humanitarian work. Can you talk a bit about that? My first overseas trip was to South Africa. I was in KwaZulu-Natal with uh, Oxfam, South Africa, Oxfam, Australia, and Monash Uni, where I did my undergrad and I'm still working. It was definitely, it was a learning experience. I was doing a lot of uh, gay and lesbian advocacy at the time. It was like a six-week stint. That would have been 2012, I believe that was. Since then, I think done stuff within mental health and to understand mental health, you have to understand colonisation. To work with people of colour, you have to understand that, you know, as a white person, understand the history of that dynamic. If you don't understand that, then you're going to miss a lot. And then I worked in human rights. I worked in the Commonwealth for what we get up to for about four years. If you want to talk colonisation, oh, the Commonwealth is a, that's a messy space. And rightly so. And predominantly all of that was within a SOGI-esque perspective, or predominantly a SOGI perspective, which for anyone who wants to know what SOGI stands for, it's sexual orientation, gender identity and expression, and then sex characteristics, if you're adding the S and the C on at the end. A lot of the penal codes that exist, um, and I'm not a legal expert, but it's, it's all there, uh, like, look at the Human Dignity Trust. They have a lot of research on this, as well as uh, Kaleidoscope Trust. These penal codes, predominantly 377s, that sit around your know, unnatural offences or, you know, homosexual acts, predominantly around anal sex as well, is, you know, those were created through colonisation. They're British imperial laws. You have to understand aid and development in that. For me, the reason why I started to formalise this a bit more into my academic learning was because, you know, I looked at it and went, I'm doing work within, I've done some work within UN Women, I've done some advising to World Health, I've done some advising to UNICEF and UNDP and UN Girls now. But I look at it and I was just so like, oh, I don't understand aid and development. I'm going to be a really crappy human rights expert. So I've got a lot of experience in field, but I've got a lot of experience as well in history and in theory and in understanding that. And I think it means that I'm not the white person who's going into the global south to just try and fix it. Everyone keeps saying from the global south, don't, and I don't think we're listening yet. But, you know, it's important for me to get a really strong grasp on the lens in which I see things because it means that I'm going to do the least amount of harm. It sounds like a low bar, but I think it's a really practical one to try and strive for. So, you know, eight years on and off in different sort of capacities, but I'm comfortable now, I'm comfortable being uncomfortable in the academy because um, that's where a lot of the work needs to be done as well because we're the people who teach our future students and if we can give you a really, really critical lens on how you unpack development and aid and where that has come from, then it's going to make you better practitioners at the end of the day and that's ideally what we want. 
Wow, that sounds like such a unique experience and that you really have a breadth and depth behind you. Whilst you were working or just starting off in aid and development, did you just apply to those roles? I mean, each, each one of these have definitely been applications. Um, yeah. But they, yeah, I, I, like my UN work more so, like it's, it's nowhere near as formal as I think people think it is. I think it's more so I just have expertise and I'm very willing, able to provide insights to things. Um, but, you know, it's just being able to, I don't know, like I got somewhat headhunted for a few opportunities and then everything else I applied. And you and like you just have to apply. You have to apply constantly and get prepared to get a lot of knockbacks. Like I am incredibly qualified, and I still get knocked back from a lot of things. It's why I'm applying to do a PhD because one, I really, really want to do it, which is ideal, and also <laughs> I'm doing it because you know I'm kind of at a point in my career where I kind of need that DR in front of my name to be able to go to that next level mm. um, and to you know, create further space. Yeah, I think. Actually, a lot of our listeners and I myself definitely identify with that rejection. It can be really hard to take sometimes. I'm keen to talk about now how you actually got into the human rights space. So you kind of moved through aid and development, spent your time overseas, getting all this knowledge and background. Did you then leverage that to get into the mental health space and then into human rights? Or was it a bit more complex than that? Anyone who's listening to this, I've honestly got such a confusing career path. I'm not going to be that inspirational person who sits at your graduation and tells you how easy the journey was because, mates, it is such a lie. Um, (laughs) I'd be doing such a disservice for all of you. But, you know, it is – so I worked in mental health first. I then got into social entrepreneurship. I then moved in, and this is all within the same years, all in 2015. So I bounced between three different careers. Oh, no, four different (laughs) careers, actually, all in the one year. Kind of all simultaneously as well. What a crazy year. And and I say that as someone who says that they are actually crazy. Like, I'm very mentally ill sometimes. And I look at that and I'm just like, (laughs) no, that's actually crazy. That is not a normal person thing. That's just, that's chaos. That is what that (laughs) is. So we're we're okay with some crazy chaos. Otherwise, it's a bit pejorative. It was a really uncomfortable situation sort of having to move through that. On the other end of this, I got a bit more heavily involved in development after that. Where, like, I won a Queen's Young Leaders Award in Australia. So I got to go to Buckingham Palace in 2016. I met the Queen. That must have been such a crazy experience to meet the Queen. I know before we were talking about how awards aren't everything and that there's much more to it. But yeah, that still must have been something just mind-blowing, really. It's, it's, it's pretty cool. I mean, like, you know, again, let's unpack you know, the British Empire for sure. But, you know, sometimes you've got, to be in, you've got to be in spaces to make them change as well. I think I've always tried to do things for the right reasons. The day that I realised that I can't make any change in the careers that I have anymore, I'll quit. When you were working in human rights, I assumed that optimism would have been there with you along the way of your journey. What areas did you actually work in within that sphere? A lot of the time, like I don't have a legal background, so I'm not a human rights lawyer um, by any stretch. Anyone who has the capacity and the will to do that, oh my goodness, you're amazing as far as I'm concerned. Uh, like I don't want to, I don't want to lie to anyone. Um, you see some of the worst sides of humanity. It's not hopeless. 
and when you're from a minoritized community as well, like you see how people talk to you. Like I've had threats. I'm banned from particular countries. There are spaces I absolutely can't go to. There are circumstances where my life would be put in danger if I did. To be working within such a sphere and advocating for a global standard and still receive such backlash yeah, I mean, like, I um made some people kind of uncomfortable. I've been on massive stages and I've had, just for context for people who are going to be listening, I'm about to say some gross words. But, you know, like, I've been called a faggot and I've been called a tranny in front of, like, groups of, like, 500, 1,000 people. I've been told after I've done a presentation or a speech where they're just like, we actually don't like you as a person, but we kind of agreed with what you said regarding our space and our country so I guess we'll have some solidarity there I'm just like cool love that what? great and well this is the thing is just like I'm not surprised by any of this because you know, okay. one it's from individuals individuals can't represent whole spaces we've always got to check ourselves on that I've had to check so much of my own white bullshit over the years apologies for swearing but if that's the worst thing that you've heard then maybe you're not paying attention enough you just have to check so much of your stuff and so much of yourself to be able to be in those positions yeah, I wrote on this um, in a book chapter on the UN Encyclopedia of Sustainable Development and Gender Equality on SDG 5, of the role that young people have played in achieving SDG 5 since 2015. Have a look at it. There's uncomfortable, there's uncomfortable stuff in there. Of course there is. We are seeing so many people really, really struggle with things. I think people finally getting a bit more perspective where they're just like, oh, it's actually bad. And so we're trying to work on it. I'm there to help create change and to help play my part. I've been banned from countries. Cool. Check your privilege because I get to fly. Well, not anymore. But, you know, I was flying like, you know, five or six times a year internationally. Check it. Check your privilege on those points. It's just, it's not just about me. It's so refreshing to hear that clearly there are self-regulating mechanisms that you can go through to do that. But where would you usually be traveling to if you were? Um, I mean, it's anything from, you know, conferences to presentations, workshops, speaking opportunities. Yeah, most of the time, it's usually either for higher education work or for sometimes some research or working with phenomenal young activists. The last international flight that I took was for SciGen at the end of the last year. We went to the Seychelles Archipelago. We ran a phenomenal workshop there. SciGen now have this absolutely brilliant campaign called Reform 53, which should be reformed 54 because there's now 54 countries in the Commonwealth. It's a voluntary membership. Um, but looking at five key requests and demands, if you will, on all Commonwealth countries to focus on gender equality from a youth-led perspective. So you know, go check out Reform 53. It's a really, really brilliant campaign and get some insight on that and see how you can participate. Yeah, definitely. I'll put all the links in the description for the valuable resources you've highlighted throughout this conversation. I would love to go back to what you talked about earlier and getting banned from countries. Are you able to speak on that at all? <laughs> I mean, I can't go into too many details about things. Let's be real, not a bucket list item. <laughs> like, I didn't have a schoolies, but I feel like this is my belated schoolie. Take that, everyone else. But, you know, I think for me it was, well, we knew exactly what it was. It was because I was queer. You know, like I was very vocal about a very particular thing and then can't say whether or not I've got served formal letters. It has been, in some cases, strongly recommended that I do not come into that country. So that would be ideal. And so sometimes when you're doing transfers, you just have to be really smart about things. What do you actually think is your greatest achievement over the years? I think I, I was saying this, I was saying this at my um, little birthday earlier this year. This is 
pre-outbreak, just for context, so I did have a dinner party. Daniel Andrews, if you are listening, it's okay. It was pre, um, but it was during the bushfires. So um, I banged on a fair bit about about mental illness and about mental health because I think that's a really, really important thing. I didn't think I was going to make it to 30 at the end of the day. It was a hard time. And so, I mean, my proudest accomplishment is that I'm still here. Work is work. Capitalism can get thrown in the bin as far as I'm concerned. But, you know, it's just, I'm just really proud of me to work in some of the ugliest parts of the world. I don't mean that geographically. I mean that the perspectives of what we do to each other. To still maintain your kindness through some of the worst experiences is privilege. I think if I stop leading kindly and I stop focusing on good things to do and thinking about how we can make things a bit better each day, then I'll quit. But until then, we're going to keep going. What do you think has kind of been the hardest challenge in your career? Um, oh, I mean, like the most difficult thing is transphobia and ageism. They've definitely been the, the hardest ones. People are all we've got and they kind of just suck sometimes. I look at a project and I just sort of go, oh, it's not going to work. Okay, cool. We'll just pop it aside. We'll just try again next time. It's okay. Like I can deal with that. But, um, you know, being told that you don't deserve something because of who you are, that I can't deal with. How did you actually get involved in writing chapters on this? Yeah, got approached by my unit coordinator from first semester in theories and development. Her name's Debbie Long. She's phenomenal. She's a medical anthropologist. I strongly recommend you look at her work. And she emailed me and she was like, hey, Springer Publications have got a call out. I'd strongly recommend you throw them a message, see if they're interested. So I sent, sent them an email and I was like, hello, I, ha- I do the writing sometimes. <laughs> would you like me to write a chapter? And they were like, oh, I love it. Keish. Professor Tony Wall, he's a really, really wonderful, incredibly kind academic based in the UK, emailed me back and he was like, yep, that would be cool. We want you to write two chapters, one on youth and SDG5 and then one on SOGI experiences within gender equality. So I was doing two chapters. They're about 4,000 words each. And they were like, yeah, if you could just do that in like six weeks, that'd be great. And I was like, (laughs) no problem, guys. Of course I can do that. (laughs) Five and a half yeah. weeks went by. I hadn't done anything. Uh, so then, like, this is how this is how intense it got. I was like, "What I'm going to do is, is I'm going to be a bougie little mole about it and book a hotel room." I yeah. locked myself into my room for three days. I studied. I think I think I read through about two hundred journal articles in about a day and a half. And then on the third day, I was like, "Great, these are ready to write. I'm really really excited. I've got this." And so I started trying to write them out. And then just completely emotionally broke. And so I just mm. emailed them, emailed the publishers and I was just like, I'm having a bit of a mental health breakdown at the moment. So I know it's due tonight, but I'm just not going to get them to you. And they're like, babes, don't worry about it. Just take your time. Has a couple of weeks. And I was like, that'd be great. A couple of weeks went by. I still didn't do it. A couple of months went by. I still hadn't done it. So in the end, I only did one chapter. But I was very happy because I consolidated both together, which I think has provided a bit more of a critical analysis. Congratulations on that front. And the link to read that chapter is actually in the description. So if you want to check it out, head there. I highly recommend it. Just as a last question, do you have a message for people who are interested in the field slash fields that you have been a part of and the kind of the career path that you have led? Yeah, just, oh, you know, mates, pick a field, whatever. Just, no, it's so totally fine. Yeah, for, anyone, for anyone who is listening who wants to do this kind of work, like, like any kind of career like it's hard it's really hard stuff to do God, it's really worth it it's like are you trying to be right about something 
or are you trying to understand something? If you have that beautiful willingness to just keep trying to learn something and trying to work it out, that's going to serve you so much better than just trying to be right all the time. Always think about what you can do for someone else. Go and do something with purpose as much as you can. It will serve you incredibly well. Yes, I love that word, purpose-driven, impact-driven, just all of that. I've really enjoyed interviewing you today and hearing everything you've had to say because obviously you have so much experience and all the advice you've given is very warranted and I'm sure everyone listening will take it quite seriously. So thank you so much for your time and best of luck with the future. Jacob. Thank you so much, friends. Um, and yeah, if you want to get in touch, feel free. I think I think I only basically use Instagram, but you know, just hit me up on Instagram. Thank you so much. Most welcome. Thank you. If anything from this episode has made you feel uncomfortable, these services are available. au.outreach.com, qlife.org.au, lifeline.org.au. If we've sparked your interest or you want to hear more about a certain topic, contact us via our socials, website or the link in the description. This is Global Questions and thanks for listening.